Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Listen, uh... Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode number 404 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Skylab, the launch of Skylab 1. In the summer of 1972, as launch preparations were underway for Apollo 17, the final mission to the moon, the hardware for the Skylab program began to arrive at Cape Kennedy. The first Skylab flight components to arrive were the command module and service module that would take the first visitors to Skylab. They were called the Skylab 2 crew because the launch of the workshop was called Skylab 1. The crew consisted of Commander Charles Pete Conrad, Pilot Paul J. Weitz, and Science Pilot Joseph P. Kerwin. The command and service module for Skylab 2 arrived at the Cape by air transport from Rockwell's facilities in California on July 19, 1972. Once they arrived, they had to undergo a series of tests and inspections. Due to the higher priority of Apollo 17, the Skylab testing had to work around the Apollo 17 mission schedule. In August of 72, the two propulsion stages of the Saturn V, which would carry Skylab, and the two stages for the Saturn 1B that would carry the astronauts, arrived at the Cape and began their tests and inspections. Once the boosters passed their test, They were stacked on their respective launch platforms in the Vehicle Assembly Building. In September, the elements of the Orbital Workshop arrived in Florida. The Orbital Workshop and the Payload Shroud completed a two-week sea trip on a U.S. Naval Logistics Transport vessel. The trip began at McDonnell Douglas in California. In contrast, the Apollo telescope mount structure was flown in a few days later. Now with the elements in assorted stages of launch processing, work on the actual flight hardware initially progressed well. But 
By October, the first problem occurred during the deployment test of the micrometeoroid shield. Spoiler alert. The seriousness of this problem would not be realized until Skylab reached space. The micrometeoroid shield was placed around the workshop. The installation was similar to fastening a corset around an elephant as 32 technicians tightened trunnion bolts to draw the 1,200-pound shield towards the skin of the workshop. But after installation, examination of the structure indicated that several bulges remained. And despite many attempts to loosen and retighten the bolts in sequence, the bulges remained. Ultrasonic examination revealed that only 62% of the shield was actually touching the workshop. So it was decided to pressurize the workshop and the area was then rescanned to reveal that 92% of the shield was now touching the workshop. NASA decided that in orbit, the difference in pressure from inside the workshop and outside in vacuum would be substantially higher than on the ground, and the situation was accepted. By default, this meant that the launch would be the most stressful time for the shield, particularly at a point known as Max Q, where dynamic pressure on the rocket was at its highest. To further complicate the matter, during the actual shield testing, the latch failed, and some of the bolts appeared to be over-torqued. This resulted in delays to the process such that the two solar arrays were not attached until November. But this was not the only problem that occurred. Over the next six months, various elements of the Skylab payload were tested and several minor problems that lingered throughout the whole eight-month launch processing period were discovered. Additionally, during the process for launch, about 61% of the experiment hardware located in Skylab was removed and replaced due to failures in the test procedure or late changes in design. This required rechecking interfaces once the replacement units had been reinstalled. The reason there were so many problems was many of the Skylab components were state-of-the-art, and as a result, they were highly susceptible to failures or the need for an upgrade. It was later determined that if such retesting had not been done, about one-third of the experiments flown on Skylab could have failed in flight. Moving on to February of 1973, a 10-day integrated systems test of the workshop on the launch vehicle was conducted. This time, only minor problems were revealed. 
Later in February, the first Apollo spacecraft was taken to the Vehicle Assembly Building for mating with the Saturn 1B. In March of 73, the launch team completed a simulated countdown and liftoff of the Saturn V during a flight readiness test. This was one of the final milestones prior to moving the vehicle to the pad. Launch dates were set for the Saturn V Skylab as May 14th, and the crew would launch the next day on May 15th. Surprisingly, the first vehicle to actually reach the pad was the Saturn 1B for Pete Conrad's flight. On February 26, 1973, it rolled out to pad 39B. On April 16th, this was followed by the Skylab 1 stack, which was rolled out of the Vehicle Assembly Building to pad 39A for a series of test and simulated countdowns. Seeing two rockets stacked on both pads made for quite a sight at the Kennedy Space Center. Two firing rooms at KSC's Launch Control Center would control the counts for both rockets simultaneously. As I mentioned, the Skylab workshop would enter orbit first. If all went well with deployment of the workshop, the first Skylab crew would launch the next day to dock with the laboratory and set up operations. Pete Conrad's crew began their pre-mission diets and spent a couple of weeks in medical quarantine in anticipation of their mission. Everything seemed ready. As with the Apollo flights, a crowd of spectators gathered at KSC to watch Skylab get off the ground. This time the crowd was much smaller though, only about 25,000 people. The usual VIPs were invited to the launch, but Pete Conrad and his all-Navy crew also extended invitations to the 591st U.S. military POWs from the Vietnam War who had recently been freed from North Vietnam's Hanoi Hilton, some as recently as April 1973. Most were combat pilots, and some of these men had been held in captivity since the war began. The POWs were captured before July 1969 and were not even made aware that the United States landed a man on the moon until five months after it had happened. Most of the astronauts had friends who flew combat over Vietnam. Conrad and his crew did not want to let the sacrifices of the POWs go forgotten or unrewarded. Among the former POWs who took up the invitation was Air Force Colonel James Lamar, who was captured in May 1966 after bailing out of his heavily damaged F-105 Thunder Chief. He watched the launch from ABC Television's press facility at the Cape. The Skylab astronauts invited all the former prisoners of war to watch these two launches. 
And we have asked Colonel Jim Lamar of Little Rock, Arkansas, to join us here and watch it with us. Colonel Lamar was shot down over North Vietnam in May of 1966, so this will be an entirely new experience for him. And if you're wondering about the very colorfully uh, wrapped cast that he's wearing, that's because the colonel has undergone surgery to repair an injury suffered a long time ago, some seven years ago. Colonel Lamar, uh, we don't expect you to say anything terribly profound, but I think you're going to be impressed by this sight today. Right, I think so too. Yes, indeed. Well, we're very happy to have you with us. Jules? As you might expect, the final flight of a Saturn V elicited mixed emotions at NASA and with space fans. On one hand, it was the end of an era for the greatest, most powerful rocket humans had ever built. The world would not see its comparable for half a century. But the last launch of the Saturn V was also the beginning of a new era, a short series of flights to create America's first space station. In a sense, everything depended on this first launch. Even though... If the Skylab was lost on this launch, there was a backup workshop. But the delay it would take to get that into orbit would threaten the whole Skylab program. Rain clouds, storms, and lightning threatened the launch during the first 10 days of May. Nevertheless, preparations progressed smoothly toward an on-time launch for May 14th. As a last-minute addition, a tribute to a decade of work done on the Skylab program, technicians attached a Stars and Stripes flag to the docking adapter on the cluster inside the launch shroud on top of the last Saturn V. The first United States space station was at last ready to fly. Launch Day, May 14, 1973 Compared to the moon missions, news coverage for Skylab's launch was sparse and brief. NBC News presents the launch of Skylab 1. You by the Gulf Oil Corporation as part of its continuing effort to bring you events of special importance. Here is John Chancellor. Hello. In a few minutes, the United States begins another generation in space. At Cape Canada, Flor Kennedy, Florida, Skylab stands ready to be launched into orbit around the Earth. Skylab is a sophisticated, expensive space laboratory. The, our attempt not just to explore space, but to use space. Tomorrow, three astronauts will join this laboratory and work inside it for 28 days. The crew, Captain Charles Conrad, mission commander, Joseph Kerwin, mission doctor, and Commander Paul Weitz, all of the U.S. Navy, will do some interesting, some valuable, and possibly historic work up in space. So with two rockets ready for space, there is a double countdown going on today at Cape Kennedy in Florida. One for the Skylab launch coming up very soon, the other for the launch tomorrow of the crew. Today's launch of the workshop will be in the most northerly direction yet, at an angle of 50 degrees to the equator. 
This path will carry Skylab over an area where 95% of the world's population lives. Before the crew joins Skylab, a lot of very complicated things must happen. First, explosive bolts must blow away the shroud protecting the payload. Stainless steel cables then must turn the 22,000-pound sun telescope mount 90 degrees from its position at launch. If this mount doesn't turn correctly, the astronauts will not be able to reach the docking port. Next, Skylab will be turned so the telescope mount faces the sun. These panels will be sprung from the sun telescope to collect the sun's rays and convert them into electricity. Other solar panels will fold out from the body of the workshop. These two sets of panels will give Skylab up to 10,000 watts of electricity. A meteoroid shield must also be deployed, and to hold Skylab on a steady orbit, huge gyroscopes must begin spinning. If all these maneuvers go well, the unmanned workshop will be orbiting 270 miles above the Earth, orbiting and ready for the astronauts. A Saturn 1B rocket will be used to launch the astronauts. They will be placed into an orbit well below and behind the workshop. The Skylab astronauts will be in a command and service module similar to those used to carry men to and from the moon. Once near Skylab, the astronauts will take a look at the workshop and then slowly approach it. We should get some television pictures when this happens. Finally, if everything checks out, the astronauts will dock, and now the Skylab cluster will be assembled, ready for its work in space. The astronauts will climb aboard, turn on the lights, and settle in for the longest time man has yet spent in space. They will study a lot of things, the experience of weightlessness, they will study the sun and the resources of the Earth. On June 12th, their mission will be over, and they'll leave. The command module will re-enter the Earth's atmosphere over the western Pacific. Its path will carry it to a point off California with a splashdown scheduled to take place about 800 miles west of San Diego, out in the Pacific Ocean. If this first Skylab flight is successful, we will have doubled our space endurance record, and we will have learned a lot of things about our Earth, about the Sun, and about living in space. The first of these two launch launchings is still on schedule, coming up in a few minutes. The weather at Cape Kennedy is clear, light winds. The astronauts are going to watch this launch, and we'll be back with more of that after this word from Gulf. A storm front was indeed threatening to move into the Cape area, and with the clouds gathering, the three-hour, 30-minute launch window seemed to be under threat. Thunderstorms that could have threatened the launch are now moving north around Daytona Beach and seem to be bypassing the Cape nicely. Out there on Pad 39B is the world's biggest spacecraft, this 100-ton monster, Skylab itself. And this is, this is the way it should look in orbit if all goes well, and indeed it has to look in orbit, before men can be launched. 118 feet high from the bottom of the cone here to the top of the telescope mount, the Apollo telescope mount, weighing 100 tons, really a three-bedroom, one-and-a-half bath house. It is so large that the only thing you can really can compare it with is a tractor-trailer truck on the highway. It is longer than this tractor-trailer truck would be. That's an idea of the enormity of Skylab as it is on the pad. 
before Pete Conrad, Paul Weitz, and Dr. Joe Kerwin can be committed to flight tomorrow, however, these solar paddles, the Apollo telescope mount here, all these devices have to successfully deploy before they can be committed. As of now, at T-minus two and a half minutes, it looks good. As the clock ticked down, astronauts Pete Conrad, Paul Weitz, and Joe Kerwin watched with great personal interest the end of the countdown of the 13th launch of a Saturn V. It had been only five and a half years since the first Saturn V had thundered off the pad at the Kennedy Space Center. And now, on May 14, 1973, this was the last of the line, and the three astronauts were on hand to witness the historic event. They were only spectators at the very beginning of Skylab flight operations, but if all went as planned 24 hours later, they would launch on a small Saturn 1B to rendezvous and dock with the station to begin a month's residency. Being close to launch time now at Cape Kennedy of the unmanned laboratory, and so we'll go to my colleague, Jim Hartz, who's there. Jim? Thank you, John. Everything is on schedule, and we have just a little over, uh, just a little less than four minutes to go before the launch. And today's launch is an unmanned shot. This is the rocket that will go. It's the same kind of vehicle that uh, powered all of the American Apollo flights to the moon, a Saturn V. However, they're only using two stages of it. The third stage is the workshop. A launch tomorrow, we're going to show you where the other rocket is. It's a mile and a half from the Saturn V pad over on what's called Launch Complex 39B. Both these pads are right on the ocean and about three and a half miles from where we are and where our cameras are. The weather down here has been uh, both good and bad today. It dawned uh, very cloudy and uh, looked a little threatening, and for a while it thought there might be some problems with a front coming through, and then the sun came out, and uh, looking out I can see that there's some clouds again, and no shadows, and a little hazy, but uh, the weather is no problem. About uh, two and a half hours ago, they finished fueling this rocket. This is known as the SL-1, Skylab-1. And if you're into facts and figures, they put 917,000 gallons of kerosene, liquid oxygen, and liquid hydrogen in all three stages of the vehicle, which stands 33 stories high. And that portion you're looking at, there is the lab. And the second stage, first stage, you can see there the uh, liquid oxygen venting off of the first stage. They uh, keep pumping fuel into it until right at the last minute. Over in the control center, and the men are ready for the launch, as John said a minute ago. Um, they've been conducting a double countdown. They are now into an automatic sequence, which means that uh, a bank of computers is handling all of the last-minute details, getting up ready to uh, launch. Again, the three astronauts go into orbit tomorrow, but everything has to go well with this launch today. Several things have to happen for it to be uh, put into the proper kind of shape for them to join it. But again, there have been no problems. And we are going to join now, I think, Chuck Hollingshead, who is the voice of Skylab, for the countdown to the launch. At liftoff, liftoff uh, will follow an ignition at 8.9 seconds. We just passed the 90-second mark in the countdown. At 8.9 seconds in the count, we'll expect to get an engine sequence start 
on the five first stage engines of the Saturn V. They'll build up thrust, that thrust will be monitored. The vehicle will be held down for the full 8.9 seconds and we'll expect to get liftoff right at T0. We're approaching the one minute mark in our countdown at this time as it proceeds smoothly. Mark, T minus one minute and continuing to count. A water deluge system now has been turned on, activated at the pad area. Pressurization taking place now, the various tanks aboard the vehicle being pressurized. Switching to internal power. All stages switching now to internal power. All propellant tanks being pressurized. Count continuing smoothly. The water at the pad covering the uh, flame deflectors. Now we've passed the 30-second mark. Water also will be coming on to the decks of the mobile launcher at the ignition point. T-minus 20 seconds, and the countdown continues to go smoothly. Guidance release. T-minus 13, 12, 11, 10, 9, 8. We have ignition sequence has started. Six, five, four, three, Lifting off the pad now, moving up. Skylab has cleared the tower. Houston is now controlling. Mark, 18 seconds, pitch and roll program started. Saturn now maneuvering to his proper flight path attitude. Mark, 25 seconds. Mark, 30 seconds. 35 seconds, one nautical mile in altitude, uh, looking good. Range safety, uh, give Saturn a green, uh, we've cleared the beach. Mark, uh, 50 seconds, two and a half nautical miles in altitude, uh, ground display data shows good stable thrust on all five engines. Coming up now in one minute. Mark, one minute. One minute, five seconds, four nautical miles in altitude coming up now and create a maximum aerodynamic pressure on the vehicle. One minute, ten seconds. Roll program complete to pitch profile, still in progress. Mark, one minute, twenty seconds, seven nautical miles in altitude. The velocity now reading 2,500 feet per second. Mark, one minute, thirty seconds, pass through max Q, still looking good. Saturn now at 11 nautical miles in altitude, 5 nautical miles downrange, velocity now reading 3,300 feet per second. One minute, 45 seconds, all sources continuing to look good. One minute, 56 seconds, 20 nautical miles in altitude. Standing by now for first stage shutdown. 
First aid shut down. Good separation on time. Altogether, this launch will last just a little less than 10 minutes. They've got to go through another stage. And uh, we're going to stay here and keep an eye on it. John? As far as we can tell from the flight plan here, all those figures you heard mean everything is working just the way they thought it would, as it often does. We'll be back with more. On the ground, the Earth shook as the Saturn V rose off the pad three miles away from the onlookers, the shortest safe distance. Pete Conrad had ridden one of these Saturn Vs through rain clouds on the way to the moon in 1969, and now he waited for and then felt the sound wave wash over him as the Saturn gained speed and rode a pillar of flame skyward straight into the cloud cover. There was nothing like riding the vehicle from the command and service module perched at the top of the stack, but witnessing the launch from three miles away came a pretty close second place. Unfortunately, this was the last time that anyone would see the spectacle, and the sheer power of such a machine would not be surpassed for 50 years. Overcast conditions meant that spectators and cameras lost sight of the vehicle about one minute into the flight as it passed through a layer of clouds. Nobody was able to view what happened next, but the characteristic Saturn V rumble could once again be heard many miles away. After seeing the launch, Colonel Lamar was asked what he thought of the experience, and he replied, That has got to be the most awe-inspiring sight I have seen in my life. That is something tremendous. Colonel Lamar, I'm always overwhelmed by that, even by the fact that there weren't any men on board today. That makes it kind of different from what we've seen in the past. But that's the first time you've seen one of those big babies go. That's right. That's got to be the most awe-inspiring sight I've ever seen in my life. That is something tremendous. Do you believe men went to the moon, Jim? Yes, yes, I believe it. I sure do. But I sure would like to have been here to see it. Golly. You missed the whole bit, didn't you? Yes, did. You didn't learn about our landing on the moon until months later. Well, about five months later, that's right. And I yeah. learned about it in a kind of a peculiar way, but it was a real thrill when I did. Yeah. Well, I hope that we have even better weather tomorrow for you so that you can see that thing arc up there. It kind of was lost in the clouds today. Weren't you impressed by the force, the, the shock wave coming across that cape? You know, we're some miles away from it. Of course that. I was. And not only that, it's that the, the, the wave began, but that it continued for yeah. so long after the rocket was there. Yeah. And they make it seem so easy, don't they? Oh, gosh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> just like child's play, but just think of the amount of work that went into it. Oh, yeah, that's what's so overwhelming. Colonel, you're going to go back to flying, too, Yes, sir, you? you bet I am. Can't wait to get back in the air. Right. First stage Thanks so much. Thanks so much. What's that? Mission control was just confirmed. First stage shut down on schedule, on the money, and second stage is igniting. Good. Good, good all the way so far. Now let's listen to the remainder of the launch. The Skylab space workshop is on its way toward getting into orbit. It's going about 8,000 miles an hour right now. Orbit should be achieved in about four minutes. Here's Jim Hartz at Cape Kennedy. That's right, they're about halfway there. 
The last report, 108 miles altitude. They are, they are looking for a 270-mile circular orbit, so they're not quite half there, but halfway, but almost. 107 miles downrange. We've been used to thinking of downrange as being south and east of uh, Cape Kennedy, but this time downrange is north. Their uh, flight path is taking them up toward uh, Nova Scotia. This will be the first time in the history of U.S. manned space flight that uh, they will be flying that far north, that far, and of course it's south and it goes around the other side of the Earth, 50 degrees on either side of the equator, which means that the Skylab will quite often pass over New York City and Chicago and other large populated areas of the United States, and of course also over London and Paris. That's never been done before by American spacecraft. Uh, over all of China, over a part of uh, Russia, and uh, I think, as John said before, 95% of the population of the world will be beneath its flight path, and I think about 80% of the food-producing areas uh, of the world. And there are many experiments on board to take uh, measurements of these. In fact, that's one of the uh, prime uh, parts of the Skylab program, is to take very delicate measure measurements of Earth resources, crop production, crop disease, watershed areas, pollution and various things like that. So it, that's the reason why we have this rather interesting orbit, and again, the first time. We should have, uh, what, about two more minutes to go before insertion. They will insert over the Pacific, up off of the coast of uh, South Carolina. <coughs> Excuse me. John? Jim, that's orbit in about three minutes, if it all goes the way we think it will. Roy Neal is with us at the Manned Spacecraft Center in Houston. Roy? Yes, John. At the moment, Skylab Control here in Houston is controlling the flight. The rocket is still doing very well. In just about a minute, the second stage rocket engine is scheduled to cut off. The workshop by then will be in orbit. It will separate almost immediately from the rocket, and a whole series of events will be instigated on the basis of which we will find out whether the astronauts will be launched tomorrow. A few moments after the uh, separation, from the rocket, the payload shroud, that big protective shield that goes over the top of the workshop, will be jettisoned or thrown off into space. The Skylab will be maneuvered to point at the sun. Its telescope mount then will be rotated some 90 degrees into its permanent operating position, pointing at right angles to the spacecraft. The flight controllers will monitor all of this very carefully, as they will also monitor two other very critical events happening at 25 and 52 minutes into the flight. When the workshop spreads its wings, not wings for flying, but solar panels that span 100 feet to provide power by converting sunlight into electricity. All of these things must work if the astronauts are to be launched tomorrow. Now, mission Control will know just about how well they're working in an hour and a half when the Skylab passes over the United States again at the end of its first revolution. We're now at 9 minutes and 30 seconds. Shut down as predicted at 9 minutes and 51 seconds into this flight. All the displays here in Mission Control showing that everything is going extremely well. We should have about uh, another six or seven seconds until second stage cutoff when Mission Control can confirm that Skylab is in orbit. We're standing by now to await that announcement from John McLeish, who is and the voice shut of... down and separation. The orbital workshop has now separated uh, from the Saturn. It's now on station ready to deploy its solar arrays, uh, telescope mount, meteoroid protection shield, uh, which will make it an acceptable scientific laboratory uh, for the astronauts for the next eight months. We have an orbit. Skylab 1 is in orbit.
During the launch, all indications showed that the Saturn was performing nominally, and most of the data coming back from Skylab indicated the same. But, in Mission Control, at the recently renamed Johnson Space Center, JSC, in Houston, there was an indicator light showing that Skylab's micrometeoroid shield had deployed a little over a minute into the flight. However, flight controllers believed this was an erroneous reading because the Saturn V and Skylab were following their pre-programmed course and performing correctly. The vehicle continued its pre-programmed ascent as the first stage separated from the vehicle and was replaced by the ignition and burn of the five J2 engines of the second stage. Another telemetry signal indicated that the interstage had failed to separate, and so the second stage engines were programmed to burn a little longer than normal to compensate for the extra weight and drag. At 9 minutes 49 seconds after launch, the second stage engines were shut down, and three seconds later, the stage separated from the Skylab payload. With Skylab at 274.6 miles altitude and 1,118 miles downrange and over the Atlantic Ocean heading away from Newfoundland, the instrument unit on top of the third stage workshop began a pre-programmed sequence to configure the station for orbital operations. After more than a decade of planning, Skylab was at last in orbit, but its condition was in question. Initial telemetry from Skylab had been monitored via the fleet of Aria aircraft off the coast of Greece and the island of Mahe. As the cluster flew into range of the Carnarvon tracking station, the expectation that the data would show the large OWS solar arrays deployed to supply 12.4 kilowatt was replaced with surprise that the power levels reached only 25 watts. As the first orbit was completed, Data received at Goldstone and Texas confirmed the reading and added to the problem by indicating a short in the pyrotechnical relay used to deploy the wings. Furthermore, data received during the second orbit revealed that the micrometeoroid shield had not deployed at the planned time. More data came back indicating that one solar array was not giving power at all as if it were missing. The second one was only giving the trickle of power, 25 watts, as though it were jammed, partially shut. But even worse, the temperature inside the lab was slowly climbing past its nominal levels. Analysis quickly determined that Skylab had indeed lost its micrometeoroid shield, and that one solar array was likely gone as well. Unfortunately, the shield also doubled as a thermal cover for the workshop. When the station reached orbit, the shield was supposed to spring open like a large tube held away from the surface of the orbital workshop 
with a series of standoffs to keep it constantly shaded. Without the shield, the sun's rays would bake the workshop structure and cook the insides. But even if the interior wasn't made totally uninhabitable, increased temperatures would degrade battery life and cause interior padding to give off toxic fumes and potentially cause food to spoil. Without help soon, the Skylab mission was in danger of ending before a crew could occupy the station. The launch of the first crew, planned for the next day, was postponed indefinitely while engineers discussed both short and long-term solutions. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 404 of the Space Rocket History podcast entitled Skylab, the launch of Skylab 1. Okay, I have an important announcement. Our next episode should be released on or about January 5th, 2023. That is three weeks from now instead of two. I'm taking uh, one week off for the holidays. Then we will return to our regularly fortnightly schedule. If you'd like to be notified by email when new episodes are posted, you can subscribe to the blog by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and typing in your email on the form. That way when I post the episode, you'll get an email, and then you can go check on your favorite podcast platform. Well, it's the Christmas season once again, and I would like to give a bonus award to my donors. If you donated $100 or more this year and did not get a magnet, email me and we will send you one. We are running low in the standard magnet, so it may be the archive magnet since we have more of those. Also, if you gave $50 to $99 this year and you want a sticker, just email me with your address and I will send one out. The deadline for this is December 31st, 2022. My email is spacerockethistory at gmail.com. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 223 are available on the Archive Podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. They should be available on most podcatchers. If you would like, you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is at Space Rocket Hist. And you can follow me on Facebook. Just do a search for Space Rocket History. You can also keep up with me on Patreon.com slash Space Rocket History, where in addition to the episodes, I post some extra things. If you missed the live 400th episode show, you can still see the recorded version. Go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and click on the YouTube link. And that should take you directly to our video. The video is on the right side of the page, third box down. If you are a new listener, 
I really want to encourage you to check this out because it will probably answer some of your questions about the podcast. So go ahead and click the link. Had a few afterthoughts. As always, I want to apologize for my mispronunciations. We finally got Skylab off the ground. Can you believe it? <laughs> I totally have uh, mixed feelings and emotions about this. On the one side, a 10-year Skylab program finally got off the ground and we're going to have a series of fun and interesting episodes in space. On the other hand, that was it for the Saturn V, a carrier rocket that served us so well, the most powerful rocket built up to 2022. Now, we finally have a more powerful one, but it's taken half a century to replace the Saturn V. I still believe it was the most significant rocket ever built up to the present time. So there is some sadness to see it end and to know Saturn V will never be launched again. Of course, we will have a few Saturn 1Bs to launch, but that's a much smaller rocket. So farewell, Saturn V. You served us well. Fortunately, you can still visit a Saturn V. I visited them at Kennedy Space Center, Marshall, and Houston as well. And when you see them, they are beautiful. They are well worth the price of a mission just to see the Saturn Vs. You will not regret it. Check those out. And uh, I hope you observed the huge lack of of public and media interest in the Skylab program at this launch. Only 25,000 visitors were there to watch. And the news coverage was sparse just a few minutes before launch, then back to their regularly scheduled program. Oh, and John Chancellor says, they'll come back if there's a problem. I also didn't enjoy Chancellor's little editorial comment about it being expensive. I would like to know what he's comparing that to. We built the rockets out of leftovers from Apollo. He didn't think that we were going to get our money's worth out of leftovers from Apollo, putting Skylab in space. He didn't think that was going to be worth it. Did he have some other pet project he thought we should spend the people's money on? I would really appreciate it if he could just report the news instead of giving his own personal opinion to the masses as if anyone cared what he thought. On the other hand, you see Frank Reynolds at ABC, who they brought in a POW to see the launch, a man who had been in a prisoner of war camp in Vietnam, the Hanoi Hilton, during most of the moon program. Nor did Frank make any negative comments about the program. He didn't feel the world needed his opinion on the program at all. NASA is expected to explore the universe and only receives pennies on the dollars of the U.S. federal budget. So I really don't know what you're expecting, Mr. Chancellor. Obviously, that that one kind of torqued me off. I'm sorry. (laughs) 
Obviously, we had a major malfunction with the micrometeoroid shield. Now, Skylab now is in deep trouble because they've got practically no power, 25 watts. That ain't going to do it, folks. And it's getting hot inside. In its current condition, it's unusable. So Mission Control, during the launch, had a warning light come on when the shield started to, the micrometeoroid shield started to come loose. But they chose to ignore it since most everything else was working correctly and the rocket's trajectory was on target, so they thought it was just a problem with the sensor, I guess. And really, at that point in the launch, there wasn't much Mission Control could do about it anyway except note the problem and hope for the best and prepare for the worst. So I really don't fault them on that decision. Anyway, it made for a perfect cliffhanger on the episode, and I do love those cliffhangers. (laughs) In the coming episodes, we'll find out what went wrong and what they did to fix it. I want to send out a big congratulations to NASA, Boeing, the ESA, and all the other contractors and subs for a practically flawless Artemis One mission. 25 and a half days in space, and everything went so well. I expected something to go wrong, but I didn't read about it. Now, I could have missed something, I suppose, but there, there was certainly nothing big that went wrong. And I heard it called flawless, or I read about it being called flawless several times. So I I just want to congratulate everybody involved with that. I wish we could just turn right around and send up Artemis II with people aboard. But I guess that's going to take a while. Now I'm really looking forward to SpaceX's uh, Starship first flight. I think the target is now January. That may be tough to make, but I am rooting for you, SpaceX. If the Starship works like it's supposed to, it could change everything. I'm talking everything. It's so much less expensive to launch, and the cargo capacity is incredible on the thing. So I am really rooting for you, guys. Good luck to SpaceX. Now, The next comment, I would like to preference this with, I am a rock, I am not, I am not a rocket scientist. I'm just a dumb old engineer. But something does concern me about the Starship design. And that is, it has 33 Raptor engines in the first stage. That kind of reminds me of the Soviet N-1. It had out something like 27 in that first stage. It was a lot. It just, to me, as an engineer, it just seems the more engines, the more parts, the more piping, the more wiring, the more complex, the more danger of something failing. Now, I'm sure the real rocket scientists have thought of that and do not consider it a problem. It's just something that kind of sticks in the back of my mind that that concerns me, and I I sincerely hope it is not a problem. It just bugs me a little bit. 
Okay, I'm going on too long. Had a lot to say about this episode. I want to wish everyone a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, and I am going to play the traditional Apollo 8 Christmas message audio at the end of this episode, so please stick around if you want to hear that. Over the past fortnight, we received eight donations, and I would like to thank Stephen B. from High Point, North Carolina, who donated at the Orion level. Simon B. donated at the Orion level. Simon B. Jay from Burley Heads, Gold Coast, Queensland, Australia, donated at the Salute Skylab level. James M. sent in another donation and moved to the Orion level. Warren A. sent in another donation and moved to the Apollo level. Stephen S. donated at the Vostok level and earned a rocket emoji. Alex B. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. And JS increased their pledge on Patreon to the Gemini level. Our total Patreons are at 242. Our goal by the end of this year is 300. Let's see. (laughs) Are we going to make that? (laughs) I don't think so. But uh, let's, let's go for 250. Our total donors for 2022 have reached 368, where our goal is uh, 500 for the year. I don't think we're going to make that one either. So uh, to put that in perspective, last year we had 444 donors. This year, 368. In 2020, we had 443 donors. In 2019, we had 487. In 2018, we had 447. The last time we were this low was uh, 2017. That's five years ago. So let's see if we can reach 400 donors in the next couple of weeks. All right. And and I almost forgot. Uh, This is a perfect time to make the emoji maneuver. I don't know. I should have reminded you that last time as well. If, if you would like to get an emoji next to your name on the donors page, you can donate something right now before the year's end and then donate in January and you will receive a rocket emoji for uh, next to your name for 2023. So it's a very quick way, like in two months or less, you can receive a, an emoji next to your name. It's a longevity emoji. So I encourage you to do that, and I forgot to mention it last week, and uh, this is called the emoji maneuver. And I try to mention it every year, and I hope that uh, you'll, you'll do that. So, especially for those who have never supported the podcast, if you are enjoying this podcast, that's been running nearly 10 years without commercial interruptions, and you can't afford it, please consider going to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Or if you would prefer, you can donate by mail, which works great for me. Please use my new permanent address, and to get that, you just email me at spacerockethistory.com at gmail.com. 
Now here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's Donor Giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, and a wonderful New Year, Space Rocket History friends. I am thrilled to spend the holidays right next door to most of my family. What a joy. Oh, it just fills my heart. Now for our drawing. The winner for this episode will get the choice of the rare and beautiful SRH archive magnet, or the regular magnet, or two stickers, or a NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Steve Bayer. Steve Bayer, if you will email us, spacerockethistory at gmail.com, tell us your address and your prize preference, we'll get this out to you. Please accept my apologies if I mispronounced your name. Sincere thanks to all 368 of you who have contributed thus far in 2022. And there's still time to contribute. I hope you will. Thank you. My sources for this episode were NASA, ABC News, NBC News, Skylab, America's Space Station by David Shaler, NASA Skylab Owner's Workshop Manual by David Baker, Homestead in Space, The Skylab Story by David Hitt, Outpost on the Frontier by Jay Chaladic, The Internet Archive, and Wikipedia. I will try to have episode 405 posted on or before January 5th. Now, in keeping with tradition, I would like to play the Christmas message clip from Apollo 8 as they orbited the moon back in 1968. We are now approaching uh, lunar sunrise, and uh, for all the people back on Earth, the crew of Apollo 8, has a message that we would like to send to you. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good and divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and the evening and the morning was the first day. And God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament, and divided the waters which were under the firmament the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. <laughs> and God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth. And the gathering together of the waters called these seas. And God saw that it was good. And from the crew of Apollo 8, we close with good night.